0: So everybody prays, basically, when they do studies and they ask, well, you know, have you ever prayed? Have you just, maybe it was one time, maybe you were in a foxhole, maybe you were in a crisis, maybe something terrible happened, maybe you had to make a huge decision, have you ever prayed? Somewhere between 97 and 99% of Americans admit that they have prayed at one point. There's like the 1% that goes, I never have. Okay, but, but 99% of Americans have said, at some point I've prayed. Now, some people have stopped praying. They used to pray, they don't pray anymore. When, you, when it gets down to do you pray consistently, do you pray weekly or monthly, drops down to about 77% of Americans. That doesn't mean they're praying to the God of the Bible. That doesn't mean uh, they're praying the purposes and priorities of God. It just means that they look up, or they look somewhere, or they consider themselves spiritual, and they pray Now for Christians, we understand that prayer is one of the most, it's maybe the first and most foundational thing about being a Christian. How did you become a Christian? How does somebody become a Christian? They call on the name of the Lord. That your spiritual journey, your relationship with Christ, you being born again started with a prayer, God save me, God change me. Jesus, I give you my sin and I give you myself. Prayer starts very early in the Bible. You don't don't need to turn there now, but in in Genesis chapter 4, the last verse of Genesis chapter 4, right after Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden, at the end of Genesis 4, it says, At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That from the end of Genesis chapter 4, what has defined God's people is those to call on the name of the Lord. Prayer is such a big deal that. And calling on the name of God is such a big deal that when Paul writes his epistles, oftentimes instead of saying Christians, he'll go, those who call on the name of the Lord. That first and most foundation, what it means to be a Christian is to seek God in prayer. Lots of people read Bibles. Every religious studies professor at every university reads their Bible. They don't get on their knees and pray to God afterwards and say, God, make this a reality in my life. That's the difference. And we want to be a people of the prayer and people of the word. And listen, here's all prayer is. We have a simple definition here we're going to use for this series. Prayer is simply this it's personal communication with God because of Christ. It's personal communication with God because of Christ. The only reason that you and I can go and talk to the God of the universe is because Jesus Christ has made a way for us. That's why we sing about Him, that's why we celebrate Him, that's why we talk about the resurrection. And look, prayer is so simple. We're not going to try to complicate it over the next three weeks. But we just feel like we're in a unique season as a church and we want to stop and we want to look at the most famous prayer in the Bible, John 17. If, as you turn to John 17, let me just remind you of how simple prayer is. Prayer is so simple that before you teach your kid how to read, you can teach him how to pray. My youngest son, three years old, uh, he, he now, he wants to pray every time at dinner, every time. And he prays forever. You know, we're trying to cut him off, you know? All right, amen, you know? But, but literally what he does, he's, he's, he's three years old, and he acts like his eyes are closed, but they're really open, right? He, he guys can squints. And then he says, God, thank you for, and then whatever he sees. And he'll just keep doing it until we tell him he needs to stop, okay? <laughs> God, thank you for napkin. God, thank you for dad. God, thank you for tacos. We're like, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, amen. <laughs> But that's, that's how simple prayer is, but then if you read about prayer, if you read about the history of prayer, if you read about the significance of prayer, you're like, okay, prayer is what moves the hand of the heart of God. You're like, wait, prayer is the fundamental and foundational thing that God uses to change me and to change people. And so this is a very serious series. And for the next three weeks, we're asking, would you be committed that if you are in town, you would be in church, and you would walk through this most famous prayer? This prayer is called, if you look in your Bible, it might be called the high priestly prayer. That's not actually a great name for it. Those, those subtitles in your Bible were man-made afterwards. Um, see, most people, when they go to Matthew chapter 6, the, our, you know, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, a lot of times they call that the Lord's Prayer. That's actually the church's prayer. Because Jesus couldn't really honestly pray that prayer because he doesn't have any sins to be forgiven. So that, that's actually the church's prayer. The Lord's prayer is in John 17. And this prayer is so famous and so well-known that John Knox, and you go, who's John Knox? Well, he was, a very, uh, he was a great church leader in the 1500s. He got a terminal illness, and while he was laying on his deathbed, he just had this passage, this chapter that we're gonna study for three weeks. He had it read to him again and again and again. Uh, it's recorded that he died while it was being read to him. And so this is a very important passage. This is one of the only times that we actually get to see the content of Jesus' prayers. If you read the Bible, it's like, yeah, Jesus prayed early in the morning. Jesus prayed all night for his disciples. We get a glimpse of his prayer uh, in front of Lazarus at the tomb. We get a little bit of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this is his longest prayer, and it only takes six minutes to read. And what we're going to do is, we're going to take three weeks and we're going to see the priorities of Jesus in prayer. And here's what you're going to learn Jesus prays for himself, that's today. Jesus prays for his church, that's next week. And Jesus prays for the lost world. And what would your life look like if you were committed to praying for those three things? Yourself. We'll talk about that. Your church. Your city. That's our hope. We believe that God is going to move, do something significant in us, through us, beyond us, as we seek his face. So, with that said, Look at John 17, verses 1 through 5. John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, and it's right after he taught for four chapters. So if you want to go back and read 13 through 16, that'd be a great thing to do with your community group. Um, it is his second most famous sermon. It's what's called his farewell discourse. We went through part of it last year in our series on the conversationalists. We stopped at the end of chapter 16. We're now picking up in chapter 17. Then verse 4, I glorified. You'll notice the word glory shows up uh, five times in this passage. I glorified you on earth. To glorify someone is to make them look great. So if you, say, if you ever say, I want to glorify God, let me tell you what that means. You want to make him look great with your life. What an awesome prayer. And that, it, puts, it puts skin on. What does it mean to glorify God at work? Well, how do you make him look great? I don't know. That's not an easy answer, but that's, that's what it means. How do you glorify God at business or at school or in in your marriage? That's what it means to glorify God, to make him look great. God's invisible, but people need to see him. That's what it means to glorify him. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. When you read those first five verses, you're like, what is going on? Uh, The first time I read this, well, not the first time I read this, uh, I guess reading this in preparation, I thought, wow, what a conversation this is. This is a behind the scenes. If you ever saw a show you liked or a movie you liked, and then they said, hey, you know, there's extended footage, you can kind of see behind the scenes, everything that's going on. What you're getting in John 17 is the behind the scenes in the life and ministry and relationship of Jesus Christ to his father. It's one of the only places in scripture where you get to see a conversation between the Son of God, and God the Father. And it kind of, what you begin to see, and this is one of the things prayer does, and you know this, prayer gives you perspective. Have you ever been fighting about something, you're discussing something, and you're like praying about it, and like, okay, now I'm before the face of God. Now I'm thinking about it differently. That's why, by the way, we always say, don't think about things, pray about them. I remember that someone said, are you gonna come on this retreat? I was, I was a young, brand new freshman, and I said, I'll think about it. He said, don't think about it, pray about it. He said there's a difference between thinking about it. Thinking about it is you're in the central, you're in the center. You're just thinking pro and con. Praying about it may involve thinking about it, but it takes what you're praying about and it brings it before the heart and the mind of God. Now, what we see in the life of Jesus is prayer always led to power. He's praying. This is John 17. John 18, he's betrayed. John 18, 19, and 20, he's betrayed. He faces a false trial. He's flogged. He's crucified. He's about to go into a very, very difficult time, and he's praying for God's sustaining power in his life. I want you to know that the reason that the church is so powerless in America is where we're so prayerless. I mean, you know this, and this is not to pick on two cities or any one church, but what is the least attended meeting at every church? You know it. The prayer meeting. If I were to say tomorrow, hey guys, Tim Keller's going to be in town, I'm going to do an uh, an interview with him, he's going to be here, and... You'd be like, all right, you know. I hope there's enough space. I'll I'll try to get there early. But if I said, hey guys, we're going to seek the Lord in prayer for an hour, you're like, well, I'm busy. I probably can't make that. I probably have other things I need to do. And and I'm like, that's not the guilt. Just to say, what is it? Because I have that in my own heart. What is that in our own heart? That when when they ask Christians, how much do you pray? And you, you know, they're probably, if you were asked that question, you'd probably give a little bit higher number than maybe you'd be a little generous with yourself, maybe. Well, when they ask Christians. And so the Christians are being honest. It comes around somewhere between two minutes and six minutes a day. Many, many, many Christians only pray what are called zipper prayers. They're prayers to begin and end things. You know, let's begin our day with prayer, let's end our day with prayer. Well, that's better than not praying. Hear me say all that. Let's begin the church service with prayer, let's end it with prayer. Let's begin group with prayer, let's end it with prayer. Let's maybe begin our um, dinner with our family with prayer. Let's, if, maybe if we're really super spiritual, we'll do a devotion and end with prayer. But most people are not spending significant time in prayer. And here's, here's what's humbling about that. That prayerlessness is one of the major signs of pridefulness. If, you, if you'd say people, are you prideful? They'd probably say, they wouldn't want to say it out loud, but they'd probably say, no, I'm not prideful. But one of the subtle ways for Christians that pridefulness, pride shows up in our lives is a lack of prayer. And so what I want us to do with our time today is I want us to look more at why should we pray, pray. Next week is going to be more what we should pray. But I want to do that the best that I can from Scripture to motivate you to pray. Because you already know that you should be praying more. And we're not here to guilt you, but more to create an environment if I get to. that If you want to make Christians feel guilty, you talk to them about two things. What is their prayer life like and how many people are they sharing Christ with? And, and we're not here to guilt you, but I want to give you motivation from Scripture. And I want to give them from John 17, verses 1 through 5. Here's the first thing. What motivates prayer is your neediness. What motivates prayer is your neediness. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. In other words, God, I look ahead in my life. It could be an hour from now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. And here's what I see. The hour has come. There's going to be difficulty in my life. He's particularly talking about the cross there. We'll look at that. But then he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Here's, here's the truth. Most people don't need more information on how to pray. They need more desperation to pray. Now, what really, if you see yourself rightly as a sinner who needs help in fighting sin, who needs help to live the Christian life, who needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, your neediness will lead you to pray. I saw this with a friend of mine. A friend of mine, he is is, is walking in obedience and walking in victory for the last few years now, but he, he had a severe addiction in his life that was exposed and then dealt with, and he had a lot of help to deal with it. And part of what he did was he kind of re, recommitted his life to Christ and recommitted his prayer life. And and he said this to me not too long ago, with the most sincere, I won't even be able to say it the way he said it to me, but he said, Kyle, I knew what it was like to wake up and be absolutely overwhelmed by my addiction and to be powerless to say no to it. He said, and one of the things I did in overcoming my addiction is I learned how to get up every morning and I get on my knees and I say, God, please help me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I need your help. I need to be able to say no to sin and I need to be able to say yes to righteousness. And, I, and he said it with such conviction. He said, when I pray that prayer, it makes a difference in my life because I know that I need God. It's like, where do you need God to move in your life? What sin in your life do you need to go, God, I, I've been trying to deal with this alone. Remember what Jesus said? Remember when the, the disciples tried to cast something out and they couldn't cast out this demon and they come back to Jesus? What does Jesus say? There are certain things that can only be done through prayer. There are certain things that you want to happen in your marriage that can only happen through prayer. There are certain breakthroughs you want to see happen in your neighborhood that can only happen through prayer. There's a neediness in it. And what we see with Jesus is he prays, this is so important, he prays for himself first. It's not a bad thing to pray for yourself first. Let's just be honest, who do you think about more than anybody else? You. We all do. We all tend to think about ourselves first. And we see, we have permission from the example of Jesus and I would say the example of Christian leaders is to pray for ourselves first. It's not selfish to pray for yourself first, it's humbling. You're saying, uh, there's no one more needy, there's no one more ignorant, there's no one more who needs the grace of God in their life than me right now. John Piper, well-known pastor in Bethlehem, uh, at Bethlehem Baptist in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, he said every day he would wake up and he'd pray two things for himself first. He said, I'd pray, Lord, please keep me a Christian. That's humbling. And then he'd say, Lord, please keep me married. And he said he would pray for those things because until he prayed for himself, he really wasn't ready to pray for anybody else. And what you pray for yourself is something like this, Lord, change me. Most of our prayers for ourselves is, Lord, bless me. Lord, keep me. Lord, protect me. Lord, give to me. Lord, make my life comfortable. We're going to see when when Jesus prays, it's, it's, Lord, get me ready. It's prepare me and he prays in concentric circles. Now, let me just encourage you in this. This might be a practical help to you. Pray in concentric circles. Pray for you and then the person that you're most connected to next. It might be you and your kids. It might be you then your spouse. And just have two or three or four rings of concentric circles that helps you. That'll be one way to help you pray. I'm going to pray for myself. I'm going to pray for my family. I'm going to pray for my community group. I'm going to pray for my church. I'm going to pray for my city. Maybe not every day, but those are ways to pray. So that's the first thing he says. What motivates prayer is seeing your own neediness. Secondly, what motivates prayer is God's word. What motivates prayer is God's word. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what does Jesus do? He first teaches the word of God, then he prays in response. He teaches the word of God, then he prays in response. He gives four chapters, that's a lot of content. He gives four chapters of teaching and one chapter of prayer. And we need both in our life. You can't have one or the other, right? It's like two wings of an airplane. If if someone said, uh, you can only have one wing of the airplane, but you gotta get on and fly it. You're like, I'm not getting on this airplane. Because unless you have the wing of prayer and the wing of the word of God, you don't wanna get on that airplane. Now, and you've seen this. You've seen this in your own life. What happens if you just have the word without prayer? It becomes dry, dead doctrine in your life. Prayer is one of the ways that you get the word of God inside of you, right? The, The goal in life is not to be... To mark up your Bible, but to be marked by the Bible, right? It's not to get through your Bible, it's for the Bible to get through you. And, and, the, and one, not the only way, there's a couple ways, and that's another sermon for another day, but one of the main ways you get the Word of God inside of you, which is the goal, is you do it through prayer. You do it through getting on your knees and saying, God, I, I, I'm not believing this right now. God, the culture's telling me everything's different than this. God, I know this is your promises. Would you help? You know, one of the most famous prayers in the Bible is, I believe, help my unbelief. But you need the word of God, and you need prayer. What happens is, the word of God starts and steers the conversation. When they ask people, and and I hope this is, part of the hope of this today is to be incredibly helpful, first to myself, but to all of you, on how to pray more, pray better, pray more effectively. And, And when they when they ask people, why don't you pray more? Or, or, what are, or more the question is, what are the struggles in your prayer life? There are two struggles that come up consistently, and they're gonna be the same ones because we're all the same. They're gonna be the same that you're gonna struggle with too. One is people say, I don't know what to pray for. Or maybe they say it a little differently. I'm tired of praying for the exact same things in the exact same way. Like how many times can I pray for Bob to get saved? How many times can I pray for you know, me to forgive this person? Or I just feel like I'm praying about the same five or six things, most of them selfish. So that's one problem. The second main problem that people say in their prayer lives is um, once they start praying, and this has happened to you, this happens to me, once they start praying, they can't stay focused, right? If they're tired, they fall asleep, right? Um, Or they they think about something, they go, I need to check Instagram. Oh yeah, I need to go to the store. They start making a grocery list. They start thinking about a a show they saw. And so how does the word of God work that out? The Word of God does two things. It helps you know where to start, and it keeps you on the path. If you just will take, you can take a psalm. I know a guy who said, hey, when you wake up, whatever day of the week it is, or sorry, whatever day of the month it is, uh, open up to that psalm. So if it's the first day of the month, open up to Psalm 1. If it's the 30th day of the month, open to Psalm 30. And just, that's, that's your psalm for the day. And use that as a place to start praying. And just read it, and then pray it back to God. So what motivates prayer is our neediness, but then being in God's word, letting the word start and steer the conversation. Here we talk about we want our prayers to be scripture-fed and spirit-led. But the third thing that motivates prayer is you have to have a big view of God. What motivates prayer is a big view of God. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven that he looked up into the sky. Now, have you ever flown? I'm guessing most of us have flown. And every time I fly, and I get in that little tube, and it goes 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet. It's kind of scary when I think about it. Um, and I look out the window, and I'm over the clouds. And I just begin to realize, I, I, every time I have this thought, I don't fly that often, but every time I'm like, God is so big. And I hope this plane doesn't go down. Those, those, are, those simultaneously are my two thoughts. God's big. I hope this plane doesn't go down. Um, but um, but you just you get up in the air and you realize how big God is. What he's saying is that uh, what you need to do to pray is you need to have a big God, a God that's bigger than your uh, suffering and better than your sin. And you need to be able to look up. See, it's interesting. If you look at Jesus, it says that he did the exact opposite thing that you and I were taught to do to pray. What were we taught to do? To bow down, to close our eyes, and put our hands together. Jesus opens his eyes and looks up. Now, the bow your head and to close your eyes and to put your hands together is a great posture to fall asleep. Okay, I'm not saying it's an unbiblical posture. There are many different postures in Scripture, but from what I can tell, the reason that posture started was actually trying to get kids to focus and pray. And all the parents say amen. Okay, that's why, that's why that started, but I actually want you to be freed up. Part of what today is, is for us to look at the best prayer ever, learn from him, and to actually experience freedom in our prayers. You know, I grew up as a Catholic kid. Nominal Catholic, cafeteria Catholic, the kind of Catholic that you, you know, pick and choose what you want, okay? But I grew up as a nominal Catholic, but all I was taught was that prayers were long paragraphs that you memorized and you had to have at different grades. In the second grade, you had to know the Our Father. In the fourth grade, you had to know the Hail Mary. And, and you had to know a certain prayer that you prayed over breakfast. And there was really no freedom in it. It was just you recited it out loud. And what we see in Jesus is there is an emotional element. He's opening up his eyes. He's looking up. I mean, how many of us, the reason that we're not praying more is we're just not looking up. We're looking down in self-pity, in despair, at our circumstances and situations. We're looking around at other people. And we're comparing, uh, comparing, competing, and trying to conquer them. We're looking inside to ourselves, to resources that we don't have, instead of looking up. There is so much freedom in prayer. You know, you can pray publicly or you can pray privately. You can pray by yourself or you can pray in front of others. We see that in the life of Jesus. You can pray out loud or you can pray in your heart. I think it's most helpful to pray out loud. I've done this several times when I'm walking down the street and I'm praying out loud and people think I'm crazy. It looks like I'm talking to myself, okay? Um, But you can pray out loud. I think it's helpful to get your thoughts together. But I also think it's necessary to pray in your heart at times. Like if you're on the plane and you're praying, Lord, I play that this plane doesn't go down, you might want to pray that in your heart, okay? <laughs> if you're praying for a test you're about to take, you might want to pray that in your heart. If you're about to share the gospel with somebody across the table from you, you might want, you might want to just pray for help in your heart. You, know? you don't want to say out loud, Lord, help me right now as I share the gospel with Joe. You know? Joe, how are you? You, know? um, <laughs> you? So you want to keep things in your heart and also you can do things out loud. So some people, this, this is going to free up. Some people, they do better praying out loud. Some people do pray better writing their prayers down. The church has a long history of writing down prayers. Think about the, the Psalms. The largest book in your Bible is, the nickname of it is the prayer book of the church. And it's the Psalms of God's people written down for generations and generations. The, the, someone once said, the whole Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. So you can write down it. Uh, you, you, you can pray spontaneously. Or you can pray very planned. You can pray by yourself, or you can pray with other people. One of the reasons we do these prayer nights, and we're going to have one on September 16th. If you're in town, that's a Monday night. Uh, but one of the reasons we do these prayer nights is to come together because it's, the our Father, for example, is given to a group. All of the language in there is plural. We were meant to pray together and to learn to pray together in community. So we need to have a big view of God. We need to know the scriptures well. But here's another thing that motivates prayer. What motivates prayer is seeing God as our Father. What motivates prayer is seeing God as our father. And maybe this is, if there was only one point to this message, it would probably be this one. If there's one major takeaway, if there's one main understanding for you to grasp today, it's that God is your dad if you're in Christ. Then I want you to know that every time Jesus addresses God the father in scripture, with only one exception, he calls him father or dad. And this was not normal. This wasn't normal for the Jews, this wasn't normal for the religions of the day. In this prayer alone, Jesus is going to call God Father. He's gonna do that at least six different times in this one. I want you to see the first one right here in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father. And he begins to pray. He starts, prayer with an identity of God and therefore an identity of himself, right? If God's your father, that means you are a son or you are a daughter. Now one of the deep theological thoughts for a moment to think together, one of the deep realities of God is that he has always been first a father. God was not always a creator. He wasn't a creator until he created something. He wasn't always a judge. But because Jesus Christ has eternally existed as his son, that means God has always been a father. And, and particularly, if I could speak to the men for a moment, uh, when you talk to men about prayer, there's almost no discussion. The, the least likely person you're going to find at a prayer meeting is a man. There's all, you go to school, something, there's always women's prayer groups. You go to the church, there's women's prayer groups. Praise the Lord for all the women praying. But what we're saying is that most men don't pray very much because they're like, well, I don't like talking to people anyway, you know. <laughs> Why would I now talk to God? It's like, well, actually, the way that you would do that is if you realize, wait a second, God's like a very good dad, like the ultimate dad, and I'm his son, and therefore, I can talk to him about anything. Now, this is this, now as soon as you talk about God as a dad or God as a father, it's supposed to be encouraging. But in our culture, it's not, right? Because a lot of dads have abused or abandoned or abdicated their authority. Right, I don't know if you ever saw that. Years ago, there was a UFC fighter. He won the, the main championship of UFC fighting. He gets off the ring, and they put a camera in his face. And the first thing he says is, See, Dad? I'm not a failure. It's like, what did that guy do? He put the face of his father on every person he ever fought. And he was this tough guy who won the heavyweight championship in his weight class, but he still was haunted by his father. One of the humbling things you realize the longer you live is everybody's life is determined by the dad they had or didn't have. Now there's the grace of God in it, but some people go, well, I wasn't determined by my father because I didn't have one. You were determined by the empty seat at the dinner table every night. It defined and directed your whole life. Do you know that every famous atheist of the 20th century had a terrible relationship with his dad or hated his dad? That what happens is in religion, every view of God is a response or a rejection of the dad you had. Let me explain. So what does atheism say? Atheism says, I don't have a dad. Now you wonder, why is atheism so popular today? Because so many people don't have dads. It makes sense to them. What's agnosticism? I don't know if I have a dad. Maybe I do. Mom talks about him sometimes. Never met him. I saw a picture of him once. I think he lives in California. That's agnosticism. What's deism? I have a dad. He's far away. He pays for everything, but not very involved. Why are there so many deists? Well, that's how their dads are. How about theological liberalism? Yeah, I've got a dad, but he's more like an older brother who's very permissive and passive and lets me do whatever I want. And then there's very progressive theology today, which is the feminist theological movement, which says, actually, God's a mom. All men are harmful. All men are dangerous. We should be raised by a single mom. And it's humbling when you realize that how people are viewing God is a rejection or a response to their own dad. Now, what do you say to that? Here's what you say to that. Every Christian has two dads, a dad in heaven and a dad on earth. That when somebody gives their life to Christ, they give their life to their older brother Jesus, and their older brother Jesus says, now you're part of the family. God is your father, the church is your family, and so you have a dad in heaven and a dad on earth. And your dad on earth may have been terrific, he may have been terrible, he may have been tolerable, I don't know. Probably one of those three. And some of you, what you need to do is you need to talk to your heavenly father about your earthly father, even if he's dead. You need to talk to your heavenly father about your earthly father. See, what we teach our kids, we teach our kids, they're young still, we teach them, hey, you guys have two dads. I'm your dad, and you've got your dad in heaven. And I'm gonna fail you, and I'm gonna sin against you. And, but you know, but your, your heavenly father is the perfect example of this, and I'm trying to be like him. And so every once in a while, I'll ask my kids, i will say, who's the best dad in the whole world? And they'll say, God. And I'll say, and who's the second best? <laughs> <laughs> and then they say, John the Baptist. I'm like, no! I don't even think he had kids. I don't think he was married. Maybe they're, they're reading that, you know, where Jesus says he's one of the greatest men or something. But, but um, true story. Uh, and then they do that normally and they run away and they want me to chase them. That's how that is. Um, so, um, but, but, you know, and that's where, t- and so when you realize, it's so simple, but basically when you realize that you pray out of an identity, you pray out of an identity that I'm, a, I'm God's son, I'm God's daughter, therefore I can, I can go to him, you know? I, I remember Tim Keller said, who would dare to wake a king at two in the morning? And his answer is only a son or daughter. And so that we, we have a special access to God in prayer, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done. So we've got to see, what's going to motivate us that, uh, to pray more is to see that God is our Father. Next, what motivates prayer is the difficulties of life. Maybe this is something we can all agree on. Life is difficult. Marriage is hard. Making enough money is difficult. Raising children is hard. Staying married, working a job, having significant relationships, being a member of a church, whatever, if it's good for you, it's hard to do. And so what he's saying here, I want you to look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, it's the word of God first, then prayer, he lifted up his eyes, big view of God, to heaven. He said, Father, he identified God as his dad, And then he said this, the hour has come. Now that's a deep theological term in John. You've got to read all of John to get it. But basically, that's Jesus' way to say, it's time for me to go to the cross. That I've done everything else necessary. Jesus had a healing, teaching, preaching ministry. But everything was headed to the cross. This is why almost all of the gospels, half of the gospel is spent on the last week of his life. Because what Jesus Christ came to do was ultimately go to the cross and it says this father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you what we see is that Jesus in the difficult times of his life goes to God in prayer and you go well don't we already do that yes but it's it's what he prays for it's how he prays that what we tend to pray when we're going through difficulty is Lord change this and he prays Lord change me Lord, align me, I love what Nate said in that video, align me with your purposes and plans and priorities. That so often what happens is we pray, God, uh, can I please avoid uh, suffering or can you please get me around suffering? And Jesus, this is such a, we don't pray like this. None of us do probably. But Jesus says, would you get me through it? Lord, would you get me through this difficult marriage? Lord, would you get me through this financial crisis in my life? Lord, would you get me through this chronic illness in my life? You've not promised to get me around it, but you've promised to be with me through it. See, Jesus tells us in in Matthew chapter six that we should pray um, that we would not be given into temptation, but we would be delivered from evil. That we're not given into temptation or delivered from evil. We never pray those prayers, usually. We don't. It's praying a lot of times saying, Lord, please keep me away from temptation. Lord, help me to say no to what is wrong in life. We tend to say, Lord, instead we tend to say, Lord, please keep me away from all suffering in my life. And what we see with Jesus is that when he's going to suffer, he's going to go to, Christ, go to God and pray, for, pray to him. And here's why this is important, and, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because this was what 1 Peter was about, but, but what the Bible tells us is our hour is coming. Not a, now his hour was unique in the sense that he was dying for the whole world. But by principle and practice, what he's saying is that there are going to be difficulties in your life, and what you need to do in those difficulties, and what you need to know in those difficulties is you need to know God very well. And you need to have a relationship with God where he's your father, you've got a big view of him, and you're asking him, please get me through these trials. The next thing that motivates is that, what motivates prayer is is a, excuse me, is the generosity of God. What motivates prayer is the generosity of God. I want you to see this right out of the text, verse two. Look how much the word give is used in some form or another. Since you have given him all authority, given him authority over all flesh. You see how big of a view of God that is? God, you are in control of all presidents and politicians and people and places and kings and cultures and kingdoms. Like, Lord, you are completely in control of every person on the planet. You have authority over all flesh. And then here's what you do. You can give eternal life. God, you are the giver of life eternal. God, you are the one who can save people from hell and Satan and sin and death to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. That's another big view of God. God, you are in control of everything and you're the only true God. That's a big view of God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent Prayer sees God as a giver and a forgiver. That's how Jesus sees God. God is a giver. He's not stingy. He's not withholding from you. You can go to him and ask. And see, that idea of authority. See, everything in our culture today is an issue of authority, isn't it? Who has authority? Who can tell me what to do? No one's a higher authority than me. I'll do whatever I want to do. And then in walks Jesus Christ who says, God is authority, is the in authority over all people in all places. That you ultimately are under authority and one day will give an account to God. So what do we do? What is prayer doing? In prayer, this is so powerful we can get this, and I don't know if we can. I'd like to. Maybe in this series, maybe this year. But what he's saying is when you go to God in prayer, you have access to authority. Not your authority. We don't have any authority in ourselves. We have a derivative authority. It's like, Lord, you have the ability to change my husband's heart. Lord, you have the ability to save my neighbor. Lord, you have an ability to bring back my rebellious child. Lord, you have the ability to give me the grace of God in this situation to walk through it. It's like whatever the issue you're going through, you've got to go to God and go, God, I believe that you are a generous God. And then th- therefore, what you do in prayer is you yield to a greater authority. This is maybe the hardest part of prayer is you say, not my will, but your will be done. It, it, it's, it's really this. It's surrendering. It's, you respond three ways to God. In surrender, obedience, and Repentance. That's what it means to yield. It's like you read a passage of scripture or you know what God has said on an issue and, and there are really three words that mean the same thing. How different would your prayer life be if you got up in the morning or I got up in the morning or maybe it was before you went to bed or maybe it's while you're driving to work and you just said, Lord, I'm just, I want to be completely surrendered to you today. I, I had a, we had a guy this week I was talking to and he said, he came into our office, my office and was talking and he said something. He said, He said, you know, I feel 90% surrendered to the Lord. How do I surrender the last 10% of myself? And I just said, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm trying to be 100% surrendered to the Lord. I mean, are you 100% surrendered to the Lord? I mean, is that, do you feel like that? Maybe you are in certain areas, maybe you're not in other areas. But it was so, it was so humbling because he just was asking. And, you know, thought that maybe I was better at it than he was, but I'm not, and I'm trying. But so much of what happens in our prayer lives, it's like, Lord, okay, maybe maybe I've given you 90. Can I give you 91% today? You know, can I incrementally give you more of my life? And it's, that's what Christianity is. It's a surrendering of your heart, of your will, of your mind, of your emotions. It's surrender, it's obedience, it's repentance. That's what we do. Finally, what motivates prayer is a clear mission. What motivates prayer is a clear mission. So after we see God as Father, and He's good, and He's generous, and He's big, and we're needy. In fact, I heard one guy, he summarized prayer as, you are worthy, I am needy. But that would be prayer in a nutshell. Every time you get on your knees, every time you look up to God, here's what you're saying, you are worthy, I am needy. But then he he ends with mission. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Isn't that amazing? God's a giver even in giving us a calling, a mission, a ministry. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, how many of us are going to be able to say that? To say that means that you don't do things just out of need or opportunity. Too many people, they make all their decisions. Oh, there's a need. Oh, there's an opportunity. Oh, there's another need. Oh, there's an opportunity. We're not saying God doesn't speak through needs and opportunities. Sometimes a door, though, is a distraction. And Jesus is incredibly focused. If you're going to be focused... In mission and ministry, you got to know what your life's about. And no has to be your second favorite word. You've got to be able to say no because you know what you're about. Here's what he says. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, and he ends with this kind of glory appeal. He says this. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He ends with a prayer for God's glory, and this is where we're going to end today. What is the glory of God? I talked about it a little bit earlier, but the glory of God, see, God's invisible. And the glory of God is when an attribute of God goes public in the world. So if you see that, you know, God's loving, or God's um, patient, or God's wrathful, it's like, well, how do you know that? You know that when that goes somehow public in the world. Like, let me give you an example. If you've ever been to a sporting event, and you've seen a key or star athlete do something amazing at that event. Throw an amazing throw, catch an amazing catch, make a basket, shoot a, shoot a goal, whatever it is, hit, hit, hit a golf ball, and when it was just incredible, and I've been to events like this, where everybody's watching, and they're watching something unbelievable and spectacular happen before their eyes, it's glory, it's the greatness of that person on display for everybody to see. And that's why you're like, why do I have shivers? Why am I tearing up? Why am I incredibly focused? Because what you just saw there is a little version of glory. And what we want to see, what our desire as a church, what every Christian wants to see is, we want to see God be seen as great in our city. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he was a famous preacher, teacher of the 1800s, he said, when you pray to God, he said, you should pray like an attorney, like a lawyer. He said, and you should make a case for God's glory in a situation. Like, let me give you an example. This week, not just at Wake Forest University, but at at all six of the campuses, college campuses in our city, there's going to be college students showing up, freshmen. Hundreds and hundreds of freshmen moving to our city this week. And one of the prayers that I've been praying is, Lord, you look so small at Wake Forest University. Like, do you know how insignificant God is at Wake Forest? Or Salem College. I'm not picking on any one university. I'm saying, or every college campus that exists that's not Christian. It's like one of the things you say is, God, you. And it's, you're not. You're not telling God what to do. You can't tell God what to do. You're appealing to God. You deserve so much glory, and you look so small. Would you glorify yourself in your city? Would people look to you? When we open one day, the front page of the newspaper, it's an article about God. (laughs) Like that's the idea there. It's like, God, you look so small. So when you're praying for God's glory, you're saying, God, would you be bigger in my life? Would you be bigger in my family? God, you look too small in my family. Sports are too big of a deal. Entertainment's too big of a deal. Money's too big of a deal. You look so, that's a great question to ask as you're dating someone. You look too small in this relationship, God. You need to be, what does it mean to be glory? Glory literally translated weight, heaviness, depth. And so why he says, he's saying glorify me, what I'm about to do, he's talking about his hour is the cross. Why is the cross the most glorious place on earth? Because if you look at it, you go, a naked guy, bleeding, crucified. How is that glorious? It's glorious because the cross is the one place you get to see every attribute of God. And I don't have time to unpack all of this, but every attribute of God is present at the cross. You get to see the love of God and that Jesus Christ would come. You get to see the grace of God and that that, that God would forgive sinners. You get to see the wrath of God and that he would pour himself out for us. You get to see the forgiveness of God and that he would forgive people while he's dying on the cross. You get to see the humility of God that he would come and be humiliated and die. And what Jesus says as he's going to the cross, he said, I have finished the work you had for me. See, Jesus Christ finished the work that he had to do, but the church has not yet finished the work that she has to do. And the reason we're doing this series is we believe that the work that God has left to do in our city and in our nation and in our world is going to start with prayer. We want to be a people that pray together and say, God, we want to pray for ourselves because that's what humble people do. We know we're the neediest. Then we want to pray for our church and other churches, and then we want to pray for our city, our nation, and our world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you would use this text, this passage, this series to call us to a deeper level of prayer. Lord, I confess that uh, so often in my own life, it's very easy to read the word and to not let it penetrate my heart. And I, and I pray that we would be a people who hear the Word of God and we respond with prayer. Lord, I, I've heard it defined before that ministry and mission is doing what only God can do. Lord, what we're asking, to see people come to Christ and be baptized, to see disciples made, to see marriages restored, to see addictions broken, to see prodigals coming home. This is all the work that only you can do. And so what we do humbly, Lord, is we come to you as a church right now, Lord, and we just ask that you would do a mighty work. You would do a mighty work first in us, Lord. We need to repent. We need to grow. We need to change. Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our church. Jesus, I thank you that you prayed for the church. Lord, and you would do a mighty work in our city and in our world. We pray this in your name. Amen.